Well, guys, again, this morning is Family Sunday, which means we have all of our elementary kids in here as well. If you're in elementary and typically up in the room, so kindergarten through uh, third grade, would you just raise your hand right now? If you're in kindergarten through third grade, typically up there, would you just raise your hand? Um, great. I see a couple of adults raising their hands. I'm not quite sure that's typically the case, but that's, that's fine. Not sure what's going on with that. Guys, welcome. I just want you to hear me say, it's so glad to have you guys here this morning. You can put your hands down. Uh, I want you to know as well, if you don't have a, a Bible, we do have some kids' Bibles back on the carts back there if you want to be able to go grab those. Those are there for you as well. But so glad that you're here. Got some activities. Uh, glad that you're uh, being able to come and worship with us as we continue to sing and hear from God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 28, 29 and 30 this morning. Uh, so we've got three chapters. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. We're going to kind of scan a little bit around there uh, in, the, in the morning, but again, wanting to see a larger picture of what God is doing in His Word, similar to kind of what we did last week. So in Exodus 28 through 30, I want to get us caught up on where we are before we just dive in, because again, there's a lot of details in these three chapters. We're talking all about the priests this morning what the priest is supposed to wear, what the priest needs to do to prepare himself to be able to do the work that he uh, is supposed to do, the work that he's actually supposed to do in chapter 30. There's a lot of detail. We can get lost in it. I want to make sure, again, we understand where we've been. Remember, the book of Exodus is broken up into two books, in essence. Chapters 1 through 18 is God's redemption from Egypt. That's the first part. It's leading all the way up to Mount Sinai. And then starting in chapter 19, all the way to the end of the book, is Israel then at Sinai and God meeting with his people. So in essence, you've got these two books of Exodus. One, God is saving them from slavery. The last half, God is saving them to himself. And so we have been at Sinai since chapter 19 where God meets with his people. Chapter 20, he then speaks and reveals uh, his law to his people in the Ten Commandments. Chapters 20 through 24 calls Moses up the mountain, works those Ten Commandments into the life of the Israelites. Here's more laws and how these rules, these words, these commandments play themselves out into the life of people uh, in everyday Israel and asking them if they agree to step into this relationship with God or what the Old Testament refers to as a covenant with God. And Israelites were like, yeah, sign us up. We'll do all of that. Not going to be a problem at all. That sounds so easy. We love it. Spoiler alert, they don't do like any of it. Uh, This is chapters 20 through 24. Then we looked last week. God has now established this covenant with his people. And the first thing he does is then give Moses instruction on building this tabernacle. Making a house for him in the middle of his people. This is what it was always about. God dwelling with his people. This is chapters 25 through 27. All the instructions, all the imagery, all the symbolism, both echoing Eden and foreshadowing heaven. This is what the tabernacle is. And it's showing us it's the way back home, God's presence dwelling with us. That is home. It's not a place. It's a person. Jesus came to bring us back to the Father. And His presence is our home. And so God's presence is now dwelling in the midst of His people. But again, whenever we look through 25 through 27, there is still a problem, right? Even in the tabernacles, God is dwelling with His people. What's the problem? His presence dwells in one room, and that room is the most holy place. And what's the problem? The problem is ain't nobody going in there. If they do, they're going to die. One man, the high priest, could walk in there once a year to be able to offer sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But no one else could enter into God's presence. So his presence was there among his people, but there was still this barrier represented by this curtain that had two cherubim woven onto it, just like the cherubim that guarded the Garden of Eden. And man could not enter back in. There was still this problem. 
a sinful people could not enter into the presence of a holy God, even with the tabernacle. So what is God to do? Enter Exodus 28 through 30. God is going to give them a mediator. There's this separation still, but God will give them this man that will function as a go-between to be able to mediate this relationship. And this was the role of the high priest, to be the mediator, to mediate God's presence, God's knowledge, and God's forgiveness to the people since they couldn't enter enter into his presence. This was the role, to be a mediator. God's plan was to move back into the neighborhood, dwell among his, uh, his people. That's exactly what he did in the tabernacle. And everything hinges on the work of this priest. So what would this priest be like? And this is the question I want us to look at here in these three chapters. Exodus 28, 29, and 30. And as we look at it, there's three things I want us to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at the garments of the priesthood. The clothes that the priest would actually have to wear. Second, we'll look at the fulfillment of the priesthood. What this priesthood was pointing towards. And third, we'll look at the continuation of the priesthood. Those are our three points this morning. The garments of the priesthood, the fulfillment of the priesthood, and the fulfillment of the priesthood and the continuation of the priesthood. So first, what is this priest to be like? It's interesting to me that as God begins these chapters on the priest, the mediator between God and man, notice in chapter 28, if you've got your Bibles, if you scroll through the headings in chapter 28, what do you see? The priestly garments, the ephod, the breastpiece, the robe, the turban, other priestly garments... There's nothing in this chapter about the priest himself. Nothing about the high priest. It's all about what he's going to wear. I found that interesting. We'll look and see why in just a little while. But there's nothing about this. It's the robe that he has to put on. It's the turban that's on his head. The medallion that's on that turban. The ephod. We all know what an ephod is. Your ephods all look wonderful this morning. Um, This is what we all know what is going on. The author here, Moses, is getting to. God is telling Moses... The importance that before we talk about the man, we've got to talk about what he has to wear. Isn't that odd? Well, it's not odd when we see what's going on with these clothes. And that in these clothes, there is all of these images and things that God is teaching us and what these clothes are pointing us to. And listen, honestly, the same as the tabernacle, there's no way to exhaustively look at every single detail. And there are some things in which we don't entirely know what what this might be pointing to. But there are very clear images given in the clothing of the priest that are pointing us to something. And so looking through this week, there were three things, especially looking at these garments of the priesthood, I think there were three things that revealed what this priest is supposed to be like as we look at his clothes. And the first thing we see, what kind of man he's supposed to be like as we look at his garments, is that he is to be the heavenly man. He is to be the heavenly man. What do I mean by that? Again, as we mentioned just a second ago, if you were here last week, looking at the tabernacle, the tabernacle is this copy and shadow of heaven. Is what the author of Hebrews said. It's this image of home and getting us back home as God's presence dwells among his people. Now what's interesting then is the detail given in the tabernacle. There's all these colors and fabrics and jewels and, um, and metals to use in the construction of it. When you get to chapter 28, you'll find it's all the same stuff. Look at chapter 28, verses 4 and 5. Here's what God said. These are the garments that they must make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. They should use gold, and they should use blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. 
Now, if you go back and read Exodus 25 through 27, you will find everywhere blue, purple, scarlet yarn. You will find gold. You will find finely woven linen. And what you see is the same materials used in the construction of the tabernacle are now being used in the clothes of the priest. There's a clear connection between the tabernacle and the priest. This continues all throughout. Um, in verse 6, we see that there, the finely spun linen is to be embroidered with gold. In verse 9, we see two onyx stones. Again, going back to the tabernacle, all the way back into Eden as well, we see onyx. You look at verses 17 through 20 in the description of the breastpiece. On the breastpiece, there are these 12 different stones and gems that are to be put on there. And these stones are referenced, some of these are referenced back in Eden. Most of them are referenced at the tabernacle, and even more of them are referenced in Revelation whenever John sees this picture of heaven. That these jewels and these stones on the breastpiece are meant to get us to not just see a connection to the tabernacle, but ultimately to get us to see this connection and relationship to heaven itself. What the, the tabernacle was pointing us to, that this priest in a way was functioning as a direct connection to the tabernacle and therefore a direct relationship and connection to heaven itself. Almost as a guide on how to get back home. A guide on how uh, to return home. He must be the heavenly man. And his clothes represented this and symbolized this. It showed that he was quite literally made for this work. What he wore connected him with what he was to do. And so if any of you after church today go walk into Target and you're walking around and you need some help, who are you going to ask? The red shirt. Anybody wearing a red shirt. And if you have a red shirt on and you walk into Target, that's your own problem when people start asking you for help. Okay? It was your fault. You should have known better. But why are you doing that? You know, if I need help with something, the people that are wearing this type of clothes, it connects them to where they're working. And it shows you who you need to go to for help. Well, friends, it's the same here in the tabernacle. That whenever God's people needed help, coming back in a relationship to God, they looked around and they found the guy that was dressed like the tabernacle. They found the guy that was there to bring them back home. That this priest was meant to be connected to the house of God, to his dwelling place. As the tabernacle is both an echo of Eden and a shadow of heaven. It's a great way to understand what the tabernacle is. It's an echo of Eden and a shadow of heaven. And in a way, this priest was meant to act as a guide, as this heavenly guide back home. Mediating God's presence to a sinful people and leading his people to God and then leading and bringing God to his people. He must be the heavenly man. And we see this in the clothes themselves. Second, we see that he must be the holy man. This priest must be the holy man. He must be separate. This is what holy means, to be, to be cut above, to be separate. Um, he must be holy, separated from sin, disconnected, pure, spotless. We see this most specifically in, um, in his turban. If you look at verse 36, the description of his turban, it says that you are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it, like the engraving of a seal, holy to the Lord. You then place that medallion on the front of the turban, verse 38, then it will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that the Lord may find acceptance, so they may find acceptance with the Lord. That there is this medallion, the inscription of it says what? Holy to the Lord. That this priest underneath that covering is to be holy. Because only a holy and spotless and pure 
individual can carry and bring the sin to God. This is what we see, this is what we see even earlier in Exodus with the Passover. What kind of lamb did they have to find? It was a spotless lamb. We see this all throughout the Bible. It's leading and pointing us and building us to something. But here Aaron sees that he must stand underneath this covering that he is to be holy to the Lord, set apart. We see this not only with the turban, but we see this also in chapter 30 with all of the consecration language. If you flip over to chapter 30, verse 19, there's this bronze basin in the tabernacle, and in it Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from the basins. Go down to verse 21, um, they must wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Again, quick side note, what's happening here, God is establishing the priesthood in Israel. Aaron is the first high priest, and only the people that can serve as high priest after that are his sons. That's why you hear Aaron and his sons, Aaron and his sons, Aaron and his sons. It's this Levitical priesthood, this order of priesthood that's being established. You had to be in the lineage of Aaron, in the tribe of Levi, to be able to serve as a high priest. And that's what God is giving the instruction here. That they must not only wear this turban and this medallion that says that they are holy to the Lord, set apart, but they must also make sure that they consecrate themselves and wash their hands and feet, symbolizing um, this consecration and ordination as they are set apart from it. Later with the anointing oil, we see the same thing in chapter 30, verse 30. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. They must be set apart. Must be a cut above. Must be separate. They must be holy. And now that they're properly clothed and set apart, they're ready to perform the priestly duties of offering sacrifices and caring for the house of God and its furniture. So we get to with all everything in verse 30. He must be the holy man. So the high priest couldn't be someone that just had no issue with sin, or could approach God however they wanted to. I know that God said we need to do these things, but I think it's going to be fine. But they had to be holy. And if ever they didn't follow God's prescribed pattern for engagement meeting with Him, they would die. They didn't wash their hands and feet. If they didn't, had, if they didn't walk in with that turban and that medallion, or if they offered a different kind of offering. This is what we see with Aaron's sons later in the Old Testament. Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire, it says. This strange offering to the Lord. Not what he prescribed. And guess what happened to them? As priests of God, instantly they died. Friends, God is holy. And we engage and meet with him on the terms that he has set. And God has, in his grace, made a way for his people in the Old Testament to be able to have a relationship with him, for him to dwell among them. But they must follow the pattern which he has set. And these priests must be holy. They must be the holy man, separate from sinners. But third, we see also in this language and in these clothes that this priest must be the representative man. The representative man. I don't know if representative is an adjective, but I made it one this morning because I love the word. And here's why I love the word. Because of what this high priest was to do. And so if you look at chapter 28, you look at verses 11 and 12, there is this description on the ephod, this um, finely spun linen that was like a, almost like a tunic that the, uh, uh, that the high priest would wear. And on this tunic, verse 11, they are to engrave these two onyx stones with the names of Israel's sons as gem cutters engrave a seal. So you have these two onyx stones and on them engraving all the names of the 12 tribes and sons of Israel. 
And then the high priest is to mount them, surrounded with gold filigree settings, and fasten both stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a memorial stones for the Israelites. And Aaron will carry their names on his two shoulders before the Lord as a reminder. That as Aaron walks into the presence of God, he walks not with his name, but the names of all the people of Israel on his shoulders. And not just on his shoulders. Look down at verse 29. Describing the breastpiece, there's also these braids that, that carry on verse, um, verse 29. That whenever he enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names of Israel's sons, not just on his, soul, on his shoulders, but over his heart. On the breastpiece for decisions as a continual reminder before the Lord. These 12 gemstones representing the 12 tribes of Israel were covering his heart. And so as Aaron walked into, and every high priest afterwards, walked into the most holy place, they walked in with the names of their people on their shoulders and over their heart. They walked in as representatives for them. This wasn't just an individual thing between the high priest and God. The high priest was functioning as a representative of all the people. And we see that functioning in the clothes, on these stones, on the shoulders, over the heart. And we see it again um, in verse 38 describing the turban. That this medallion we read earlier will be on Aaron's forehead. But did you hear why it was on Aaron's forehead? It was on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. As Aaron walks in under the covering of this holiness, he walks in bearing the guilt of the sacrifices that the Israelites had offered. He is able to then, as underneath this holiness, to be able to bear the guilt under his wings, under the wings of this holy covering to walk into as a representative of the presence of God to be able to bring this sin before the Lord. As Aaron walks in, again, he represents all the people's names and all the people's sin as he walks into the presence of God. And he secured their entrance into God's presence. Aaron did, the high priest did, and all of his sons afterwards. That they, they could only enter because they rested on his shoulders. Because they rested over his heart. And Aaron walked in bearing the guilt connected with the holy offerings. Meaning every sin, every shortfall, every act of rebellion was taken under the covering of this perfect holiness displayed by Aaron. And he acted on behalf of his people as their representative. So this was not an individual thing. He was representative there. He was the representative man. Again, I wanted an H word there because we had heavenly, holy, and, but representative, again, I don't know if it's an adjective, but we just made it one because it gets, it gets to the heart of this. The high priest was a representative of his people. This is what we see here in the garments of the priesthood. These are some of the ideals that these clothes represent. The heavenly man, the holy man, and the representative man. But as you read through these images and this ideal painted by what the clothes need to be worn. Is there something rolling in around in your mind a little bit going, oh, this is what they're supposed to be. None of these high priests actually were these things perfectly. They weren't a perfect representation and connection to heaven. They weren't a perfect lives of holiness. They sinned. Goodness, in just a few chapters, we're going to see what Aaron does with the gold calf. He's not holy to the Lord. They don't quite live up to these ideals. I think that's why before God gets to the person in Exodus, he begins with the clothes. Because the clothes are painting the ideal of what this high priest is to do. This is the type of person that's needed in order to make sacrifices for the people. 
Right? But the problem is for these priests, every single one of them aren't sinless, offering sins for others. They've got their own sin that they need to deal with. And this is all of chapter 29 is going, okay, before the high priest then can offer sins for people, they need to offer sacrifices for themselves. And that's chapter 29. The things that they needed to do to be consecrated, the sacrifices they needed in chapter 29, verses 10 through 25, before they were able to then, looking at verse 38, offer regular sacrifices on the altar every day. Before they could sacrifice for people, at the end of verse, chapter 29, they had to sacrifice, sins for, or sacrifice for themselves and their own sins. And all of this, all these clothes, it doesn't quite fit with the man. The ideal that we see shown in these clothes doesn't quite match up with the reality of what the high priests were actually like, of Aaron or any of his sons. There was uh, one person uh, a couple years ago was giving me some of his old clothes. He gave me some old suits of his. He's like, you wear jackets? Here, have these. And in it, he was saying, you know, we're about the same size. I had these suits custom made for me, but I think they'll fit you. I went over and, and tried them on. It was incredibly kind, but as I tried them on, I noticed that they were close, but they didn't quite fit. It's the same thing if you shop at Goodwill, which, listen, people knock on Goodwill. They're outstanding clothes at Goodwill. But when you go and you're looking through the rack, you're not trying on every single size to find the one that picks you. You just got to take what's there because those clothes were somebody else's. And as I tried on these suits and tried on these clothes, it was close, but it didn't quite fit because they were made for someone else. Sure, they were custom fit, but they were custom fit for another body. They didn't quite fit on me. And so I can't help but wonder, as Aaron and his sons put on the priestly garments, as Aaron slipped his arm into the robe, and he placed the turban on his head that was inscribed within a medallion that said, Holy to the Lord. And he carried over his heart the names of his people as he fastened on the breast piece. That as he put these clothes on, I can't help but think that maybe Aaron felt like these clothes didn't quite fit him. I don't know if him or his sons ever felt that way. Maybe they put them on and were like, man, this is perfect. I'm just the man for the job. So I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But if they did feel that way, then they were absolutely right. These clothes were always meant for someone else. Someone else who would come and fit perfectly in all of them to fulfill this priesthood once and for all. And that shows us what each of these things are pointing towards. So secondly, the fulfillment of the priesthood. The fulfillment of the priesthood. What we see Jesus come and say whenever he arrives on the scene, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this interesting and fairly provocative thing towards the beginning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus says whenever he shows up on the scene, he's not coming to abolish the law. So everything we're reading now, everything in Leviticus, all these Old Testament commands underneath the Mosaic covenant that we've just seen ratified in chapters 20 through 24, Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He didn't show up and go, hey, that stuff is just no good. Let me show you what's really awesome. This stuff is just really mean and God being like really particular and legalistic, but I've got a bunch of grace now. Let me show you the good side of God. That's not what Jesus came to do. And there is some Christian teaching that can sound like that if we aren't careful. 
almost as if God is schizophrenic. There's the Old Testament mean God. Finally, Jesus comes and corrects everything. But he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill it, showing that all these things were not only God's grace for Israel and being able to restore a relationship with his people and dwell among them, but each thing, every story, every type, every tabernacle, every priest, every office, every king, uh, all of it was building up and pointing to this one person, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled it. He didn't abolish it. And so if you think about it, I love movies. Movies are my favorite things in the world. I love going to the theater. Cinema is just an incredible experience. I don't know why popcorn costs $18. I cannot figure it out. But apart from that, it's an outstanding experience. And I love going to theaters. And and one of the things I love almost as much as theaters is, is the previews for the movies. People have gotten so good at making previews. You watch it, and it doesn't matter what it is. You just get so excited about it. There's some people that are really bad at it and will like show you the whole movie in the trailer. That's not any good. But people that are good at it, oh, man, it's so good. And then you go see the movie, and it's a huge letdown. It's like, God, the trailer was so good. How's this movie so bad? I was so excited. But these trailers, you've got the music building up. You've got you know, all these things, the, the scenes flashing up, the people that are talking. You see the hero you know, about to fall off the building. Oh, what's going to happen? Oh, no, Ray has a red lightsaber. Is she going to the dark side? What's going to happen? What a great trailer. The movie ended up being terrible, but the trailer was awesome. <laughs> these are the previews, and here's the function of these previews. What's the function of these previews? It's to create in you an excitement for the movie. It's to create in you a longing to go experience the the full feature, the feature film. And when you go, so for instance, I'll I'll never forget where I was when I watched the trailer for Avengers Endgame. The final, um, capping off the Infinity Saga, the second highest grossing movie of all time. Outstanding movie, love it. But I remember when the trailer came out, I was counting down the days, I knew when the trailer was going to come out. I remember where I was when I watched it. And I watched it, and I just was that much more excited for what was going to come. And I watched it a lot. And then I watched the second trailer whenever it came out. I'd watch it in in conjunction with the first trailer. It was a great pairing watching those two trailers back to back. And then the movie came out, and I bought the Thursday night before the premiere, like at the largest screen in Central Florida on iDrive to go and see this movie. And when I watched it, I was breathless. It was awesome. They nailed it. They stuck the landing. Ten years of storytelling, they stuck the landing with Endgame. And I loved it. And when I walked out of that theater, you know what I didn't do anymore? I didn't do watch the trailer again. You know why? Because I'd seen the real thing. And I continue to go back and watch it in the theaters, and now on Disney+, Plus, continue to watch it on Disney+. Plus. I don't watch the trailers because I've got the real thing. And friends, there's a way in which everything in the Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets is functioning as a trailer and a preview for what is to come. It is not opposed to Jesus. It is giving us a taste and a preview of what Jesus will come to do. And so when he shows up, he is the real thing. He is the feature film of this book. So when he shows up, all eyes go on him. And he has fulfilled all the trailers, all the previews, all the shadows of the law and the prophets. He didn't abolish them. He fulfilled them. So we no longer need the trailers because we've got the real thing. This is what Jesus has come to do with all of it and especially with this priesthood. Jesus is the true heavenly man. The one that these garments were pointing us to. He said, John 8, 38, or John 6, 38 through 39. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. 
Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus, in the truest form, came from heaven itself, the true heavenly man, and He was made to do this work, to be able to bring us back home. Because this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of those He has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. He is the true heavenly man, connected to heaven, coming to bring us back home. He is the true holy man, the true holy man, the one that is truly set apart, that psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 24 asks a similar question, talking about God's presence and who can enter in. Asking, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And here's the question. The psalmist is thinking about Sinai and God's presence in Exodus 19, dwelling on top of Sinai in this cloud. And who could ascend it? Moses. He was the only one. Well, Moses isn't around anymore, so who shall ascend now the mountain of the Lord? And what does the psalmist say? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Chapter 24, verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who's not appealed to what is false and who's not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord is one who's pure, blameless, one who's holy. The one that this medallion was pointing toward. Aaron stood underneath the covering. He wasn't himself holy, but he was pointing to the true holy man. The one who was the only one that was without sin. The only one that was without blemish. The only man that did not sin. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 puts it this way. In comparison between these, these two sacrifices, that the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So he's saying that all these Old Testament sacrifices sanctified externally the purification of the flesh. They dealt with this covering, but these sacrifices had to be repeated daily, yearly, over and over. If the blood of both goats and bulls did that, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the true holy man, how much will he cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God? He was the holy man. He was the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord. He was the one with pure hands and a clean heart who could enter into God's presence. Listen to this. On his own merit, he did not need a sacrifice. He did not need to be consecrated. He did not need to be washed. He could ascend the mountain of the Lord on his own merit, on what he had done. Oh, one, uh, one old pastor. Let me see if I can I read this this week. I didn't write it in here. Let's see if I can remember it. It's not going to be as good, but it's, you'll get the gist of it. He said this, that Jesus is the only man to enter into heaven on his own account. And whenever he, the light of the world, entered in, he cast no shadow there. How beautiful is that image? He was able to walk in on his own, and there was no shadow that was cast from him. He's the holy man that was able then to bear the guilt of our sin, the spotless sacrifice that could do that. You had to be spotless in order to absorb and bear the guilt of another. And he was truly not only the heavenly man, but also the holy man. And third, he's also the true representative man. The true representative man. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it this way. That Jesus himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. Just as Aaron would bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings. 
Jesus bore our sins on his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds, you have been healed. That he acts as a representative for us, that our sin is transferred to him and he bears that guilt. He wears the names of his people on his shoulders and over his heart whenever he enters into the presence of God, bearing our guilt on our behalf. And he then brings not only as the high priest, but also a sacrifice. But the high priest would bring what kind of sacrifice? The blood of bulls and goats? The blood of another. Jesus' work as the priest was totally different because he was not only the high priest, he was also the sacrifice. He brought himself as he bore our sins in his body on the tree and he died to sins that we might live for righteousness. He fulfilled the law. He was the one that all of these clothes were pointing towards. He was the one that these clothes fit. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is the summary in Hebrews 10. As the author of Hebrews goes on the longest extended teaching on the priesthood of Jesus, all the way from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 18, talking about the priesthood of Jesus. And he wraps it up this way. Jason read it earlier, Hebrews 10, 16 through 18. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, and he quotes Jeremiah. Again, you see the connection between the Old and New Testament, guys. Quotes Jeremiah and says this, I will put my laws on their hearts, And write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. That is fulfilled in the priestly work of Jesus. And here's the conclusion in verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer an offering for sin. Why? Because it's been paid for. There's nothing left to do. Jesus has brought full forgiveness The Old Testament was, these sacrifices were good for the external covering of the flesh, but Jesus came and did something internal. He didn't come and cover our sins, he came to remove our sins, to put an end to our sin, to forgive our sin once and for all. And when he did that, fulfilling this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, he offered forgiveness and there's no longer a need for these offerings. There's no longer a need for these uh, roles, for these clothes, for these sacrifices, because Jesus came to fulfill it. He is the great high priest that everything here in Exodus 20 through 30 is pointing to. So why does that matter? I know that there's a good bit of doctrine and theology trying to figure out what did the priest do? How does that connect to Jesus? Why does that matter? Listen, here's why it matters. This is not strictly a theological exercise so we can get our doctrine in order. And we can go, oh yeah, here's what the high priest did. Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. Jesus is the great high priest. Here's his priestly office. Here's his work. We don't want to stop there. There is tremendous application and ramification. I tried to combine those words right there, amplification. That's not a word. Application and ramifications to this work of Jesus as our priest. And if we don't understand all of that that we had gone through already, then we won't be able to apply it in our lives because here's how it applies. You know what I know? Every single one of you here are sinners. I know that because I'm one and that's what God has said. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for each of you here, there are probably some of you here that are struggling a lot with shame and guilt, condemnation over specific things maybe that you've done. 
Maybe this morning, maybe last night, maybe this past month, maybe earlier in your life, and it nags at you. And it's there in your ear. And you hear the, whis- you hear the whisper of the enemy accusing you. The accuser, this is one of his names in Revelation. It's one of the things that he does. One of his tactics is to try to accuse. Bringing back up these things from our past. Whispering in our ear how worthless we are. That we're not worthy to be able to have this relationship with God. And bearing shame and guilt as a result of our sin before a holy God. Every one of us have experienced that. And some of you this morning maybe are experiencing it very acutely. Walking to church this morning going, why am I even here? I'm such a hypocrite. I want to love Jesus, but I keep falling into these same sins. It's, it's surely he's got to be just done with me. Sure, I, I, I want to love him, but I keep doing these things, and I can't talk to others because I don't know what they'll think of me. And we feel the shame associated with the things that we are doing. And we hear the whisper of the accuser telling us that we're not worthy. What do we do in that moment? Well, friends, we get the priesthood of Christ deep into our bones. So that in that moment, we're able to turn and say back to our accuser, you know what? You're sitting here telling me that I'm not worthy. You're telling me that I bear the guilt of my sin, that I I deserve condemnation for my sin, that I should feel shame for what I've done, rebelling against God, and that there's nothing I can do to be able to walk back into his presence. What we can say to those accusations is looking the accuser right in the eye and go, you know what? You are absolutely right. But that's just the first half of the gospel. Because you see, it doesn't end there. What we see is that the enemy is telling us that we are a sinner and we're able to say, that's exactly right. But let me tell you who Jesus has come for. He came for sinners. And we can say, like Paul said to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them. Saying you have nothing on me because I know the work of my priest. He has taken all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt, guilt, and He has borne it on His own body, on the tree. It has been placed on Him because He's my representative. He has gone before me, and He stood in my place, and He took the punishment for my sin. So there is therefore now no condemnation for me because He drank it all in my place. So it doesn't matter what you throw at me, it doesn't stick. It won't stick on me. One of, my, one of my children the other day had uh, these stickers from a uh, fast food place. It was a little toy that they gave them. And he's sitting there peeling them off and was going to put them on the uh, bucket that he had. And they just kept falling off. He's like, Dad, they won't stick. I was like, oh, let me see. You're just not doing it right. And I pulled them off and they just weren't sticking. They were terrible stickers. And as you can guess, this wasn't Chick-fil-A. We'll just say that. We'll, just, we'll leave it there. Well, friends, whenever we get the priesthood of Christ deep into our bones, the accusation of the enemy is like those cheap stickers. He can put them on, but they just aren't going to stick. We go, no, I, I know who I am. And yeah, I've fallen. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I deserve guilt. And I am not worthy to enter into God's presence. But that is not what is needed for me to ascend the hill of the Lord and enter and draw near to a relationship with Him. Because the grounds of my assurance is not my performance, it's my priest. And His work is finished. He is my heavenly man. He is the holy man. He is my representative. 
He's made for this work, and he's come to bring us back home. He is spotless and pure, the only one who could enter the presence of God in his own right and offer himself as a sacrifice. And he is the one bearing on his shoulders and over his heart the names of all his people, bearing their guilt as if it was his own. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. And so if you're listening at the beginning, you may hear then, okay, if it's fulfilled, didn't you say the third point was the continuation of the priesthood? How does it continue if it's fulfilled in Christ? I'll go through this quickly as we look at how this has continued into our lives today. 505 years ago, um, tomorrow actually, 505 years ago tomorrow, October 31st, 1517, uh, the reformer Martin Luther took 95 concerns he had about the church, known about the 95 theses, and he went to a church door in Wittenberg and he nailed it on the wall or the door there listing out the concerns he had with the Catholic Church at the time. And it sparked what's known as the Protestant Reformation. There are a number of things central to the concerns that he had. One of them central, though, is this conversation. How does the priesthood continue in the lives of Christians today? The Catholic Church would have a separation between laity and clergy. And those clergy would act as priests, as sorts of mediators. Ones who, when you needed forgiveness, you went to them. When you needed prayer, you went to them. Whenever you needed God's word, don't, don't read it on your own. You can't read it. You need us to tell you how to be able to do it because there is still this separation. Martin Luther is reading through the New Testament. And he's going, I don't think I see this anywhere. In fact, the opposite, it seems like the priesthood doesn't end. It continues, but it's not a certain select group of people. It's every believer. It's the priesthood of all believers. That is what we see in 1 Peter 2.9. Here's what Peter says, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his possessions that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those three phrases, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, he's quoting the Old Testament. You know what he's quoting? Exodus 19. So God was telling his people at the base of Sinai that he's going to make them a royal priesthood. We see this not just in 1 Peter 2.9, that there's a priesthood of all the Christians who are receiving Peter's letter, but later in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, there are these angelic beings gathered around the throne. They're singing a new song, and here's their song, singing to Jesus. Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them, listen to this, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. I want you to hear that the priesthood continues, but it continues for every single Christian. It's a priesthood of all believers. And here's how this works out. We'll go through this real quickly. Four quick ways how this works out in our life and what that means. First, that means that it grants us each individual access. It grants each of us individual access. It levels the playing field. There is no longer a need for you to find someone else to be able to get you to God. But Jesus, through his work of the high priest, what we've seen, he has torn the veil of the temple so that we now can draw near to God on our own. We have access individually. So I do not mediate God's forgiveness to each of you. You go to him and he forgives you through Jesus. You don't need me to do that. We don't have, we, there's a lot of things we have in this gym. A forgiveness little booth isn't one of them. There's not a confession booth here hidden behind the pipe and drape. You've got Jesus. You don't need anyone else. It levels that playing field. You can study God's word on your own. 
This is what we see in the, in the book of Acts. Paul was preaching, and there were these people in Berea that were listening to him. Afterwards, they went back to see if the things that he said were true. Why? Because every Christian has the Spirit of God indwelt in them so that they can then read the book that he wrote, and they don't need someone else to tell you what it says. You can study it for yourself. There's conscious decisions that you can land on. You don't need someone else to tell you what it is. You can go directly to him. It levels that playing field. Again, that's why there's no, you don't call me Father Caleb. We have one father, and I'm not him. If you've grown up in any kind of church tradition where sometimes it's kind of more old-fashioned, where they call each other brother and sister, brother Caleb, sister Margaret, um, brother John, it sounds kind of old-fashioned and churchy. It is a beautiful outworking of this truth. That we are brothers and sisters. Fundamentally, primarily, I am a Christian. A son of the king. Locally, in an expression of his church, I'm a member of this church. And then as a member, the members of this church have recognized me as an elder and placed me as an elder of this church. I am though a member before I'm a pastor. I'm a member of this church before I'm an elder. Because there is a level playing field here. There is no distinction between clergy and laity. It grants each of us access. Second thing that this does, the priesthood of all believers, is it offers us assurance. It offers us assurance. I mentioned it already, but our assurance isn't in our performance. It's in our priest. Again, the author of Hebrews all through 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, all the way through 10, 18, is building the case for the priesthood of Christ. And you know what his conclusion is? Here's the conclusion he draws in um, Hebrews 10, verse 22. Therefore, let us draw near with a true... You hear that access there. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. Friends, one day each of us will stand before God as our judge. And what will our plea be? What will you say to him? You may go, I'm I'm not going to be very confident. You're worried about what he'll look at your life. Or maybe, maybe you'll walk in and go, you know what? I was pretty awesome. I feel fairly good about it. But you know what the, the hymn writer says there in the song we sang earlier? And it captures with the heart of this. When we stand before God and we give our plea, we have a perfect plea. And there's no need for concern in our assurance. Because our plea is not in our performance or in our life or in the good things that we've done. But we have a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. That is our plea. And it offers us assurance in this priestly work. Third, it makes us a kingdom. It makes us a kingdom. There is a critique on the priesthood of all believers that it will individualize the faith. That you'll hear those first two things and go, oh, I've got access. I've got assurance. I don't need these other people. These other people are the problem. Right? Me and Jesus, we're good. It's the church I've got an issue with. You know, the people are just the worst. So I'm just going to keep on my own here. I'll study the Bible. I've got access. Right? I can learn it myself. I don't need anybody to teach me. Um, So I'm just going to be a Lone Ranger Christian. But friends, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in the New Testament. You'll find more unicorns than you'll find those in the New Testament. There is a corporate shape to what God is doing. From the very beginning, in Exodus, he saved a country. You heard it in 1 Peter, right? A race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. There's a corporate shape to God's redemptive plan. It's not individualized. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. It is not individual. It's corporate. It is a kingdom. Did you hear that in Revelation 5? He has made us a kingdom. 
The kingdom of priests. There's a collective here that God is doing. In this priesthood, he's connected us together as a kingdom of priests. So we're not individual. It also brings us together. And then fourth, what it does, this understanding of the continuation of the priesthood and the priesthood of all believers, is it calls us to ministry. Again, this isn't just individualized. and It doesn't terminate with our access to God or our assurance. But think about what the priest would do. The high priest would enter into the presence of God. He would hear the knowledge of God, enjoy the presence of God, and receive the forgiveness of God. And then he would leave and he would go and mediate that back to his people. It didn't end in the presence of God. He would then mediate that presence back to others. And friends, the same thing is true for you as a priest of God today. That as you now have that access and enter into the presence of God and you hear his teaching, you enjoy his presence, you receive his forgiveness, as you then leave his presence, whether it be whenever you gather together and worship on a Sunday, throughout the week as you're reading the Bible, uh, if you're praying in the car or singing a song, as you're enjoying the presence of God, it's never meant to terminate with you. But that enjoyment of his presence, the ability for you to be able to draw near to him, it's meant then for you to turn and go and mediate the enjoyment of that presence both to his people and to those who aren't it's to call you to ministry for you to be another word is an ambassador Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 for you then to work on behalf of your king to enjoy that presence experience that presence and then minister both to Christians and to non-Christians as you are ushering them into experience the presence of God for themselves because you are a priest and that's the priestly work it calls us to ministry Friends, this is what these three chapters about ephods and breastplates and sacrifices and incense are teaching us. We need a mediator. And here's what that mediator must wear. Here's what he must prepare for himself. And here's what he must do. That's chapters 28, 29, and 30. But it had to be done continually because it could never deal with the root problem. Author Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 It says, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, he sat down because there was no more work to be done. It's finished. So on this Reformation Day, I hope you can see the priestly work of Jesus and live with confidence now, knowing that what is true for the people of Exodus in the New Testament and ultimately what it's pointing it to is true for us today, that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's pray.